Happy Hanukkah, friends. Welcome back to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. I'm so happy that you are here with us today. So it is my pleasure this week as a little bit of a Hanukkah bonus to share with you recordings on our podcast of a two-part series that I taught last year live via Zoom for a wonderful organization called Project Inspire. And this is a two-part series that really gets into the heart of what Hanukkah is about. We go a little bit deeper into the Hanukkah story itself and some of the other themes around Hanukkah. I think you'll really enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed giving it, and I'm excited to share it with you here as a two-part series. So here is part one today, and then in a couple of days, I'll share with you the second part. And I hope that it provides you with a little bit of inspiration, some new, some fresh ideas. I always say every single year we need to go a little bit deeper and deeper into every single holiday. That's the way we continue to grow. So I hope if you haven't heard these classes in the past that you'll find something new to take with you and to think about as you're lighting the menorah, as you're going through Hanukkah, and that it adds a little bit more light to a a holiday that is so full of light and depth and beauty. So without further ado, here is part one, rediscovering our inner flame. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. There's a great rabbi who was known as the Eish Kodesh. The Piyaset and the Rebbe was the rabbi of the Warsaw Ghetto. And uh, he wrote many very, very passionate, very powerful books. One of them is one sitting right in front of me. It's called Hachsharat Avrechim. And he introduces in his book these three terms, three different ways that he describes how people are feeling in terms of their relationship with their spiritual selves. And again, we don't know each other that well yet. Um, and I don't know the different levels of Hebrew of our audience out there. So I'm, I'll, I'll just assume that we have all sorts of wonderful people out there. But these three Hebrew words, and if you're familiar with them, if not, don't worry, I'm going to translate it and explain it. But the three words, the three different levels of connection that he speaks about. The first word is hit ba'alut. We'll translate it in a moment. The second one is hitragshut. Sounds a lot like the first one, it's a little different. The third one is hitlahavut. I'm sure many of you out there are familiar with these words, or at least the third one. Hitpa'alut is literally translated, it's about inspiring oneself. It's about being inspired. Nitpa'el, I'm inspired by something. Something awakens my attention. The next one is hitra gush, the hitra shut. The root of it is regish. Regish means emotion. It's something a little deeper. I'm emotionally connected to something. Hit lahavut, the root of that is lahav. It's a fire, it's a flame. Let me explain these three levels, and I'm going to share with you a, a personal story, something a bit embarrassing, but we've been friends now for at least five minutes, so I'm sure that I could open up and share with you somewhat of an embarrassing story. A couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago, probably close to 10 years ago, my wife and I, our family, we moved into our first private home. We were living in an apartment up until then. We were in Israel. We moved to America. We had a home. Beautiful. And um, there was a fireplace in our home. 
And we were very excited to light the fireplace and have a cozy evening, sitting, family sitting around the fireplace, maybe roast some marshmallows. And um, I never lit up a fireplace, but it was just something new to me, you know? I was actually, you know, I used to, in, in, in the day, you know, in my, in my younger days, I actually did go camping a lot, but I was the guy who, who played the guitar. So because of that, the rule was the guy with the guitar didn't have to do any of the actual work. I would just be there strumming the guitar and then put up the tent, you know, someone else has got to do it. Like the fire, someone else has to do it. So it wasn't much of an outdoorsman. So it came to having to uh, light this fireplace. And the previous owner of the house had, had left in the garage some, like, these mini logs for the fireplace. So I figured, okay, looks like firewood to me. You just, you, you put it in the fireplace, and then, you know, you light it up. Simple as that, right? And so you're laughing already. <laughs> so I tried lighting the firewood, and of course, as you can imagine, right, I'm sitting there, I'm putting the flame on, and, you know, as they say in Yiddish, it's a game nisht. It's not going, nothing's happening. It's not starting up. You know, you know that. Right? I didn't know that at the time. So I'm thinking back, what can I do? And, you know, my wife is ready. She's like, I don't think that's going to work. You know, why don't we just go to the store and we can get, they have these easy light things. You just put the match to it and it lights up. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to do it. Right. I've been, cap I've gone camping many times. And I remember that they used to put toilet paper, right? You've been, you've, you've seen that in these, these, um, uh, when they make the bonfires, right? So they wrap it in toilet paper. So I'm like, okay, bring the toilet paper. We had some newspapers in the house, some pudding in the fireplace, some newspaper and some, some toilet paper and trying to light it. And for the moment, it actually looked like it was starting to light because, you know, toilet paper and all these things, they are flammable and they do light for just a couple of moments. But of course they burn out. And within a couple of minutes, we have just, you know, Ashes of newspaper and toilet paper, and they're like floating all around the house. And I'm like, kids, quick, you know, catch the toilet paper before it lights the house on fire. In the meantime, my wife had, you know, kind of snuck out and went down the block, and she got some of these easy, easy life things. And uh, after a while, you know, I called it quit, held up the white flag, and we lit these very flammable. Uh, fireplace logs, and you know, as you can imagine, these things right there, they're beautiful. You put a little fire to it, and then boom, you have this beautiful fireplace. And I learned a wonderful lesson, and it helped me understand a little bit more of what this ho the Holy Rebbe, the Esh Kodesh, was speaking about. When a person is connecting to the spirituality on the level of hitpa'alut, inspiration, we often become very dependent on the motivational speech, on the rabbi's sermon, on the new music, on something outside, something external. Someone else is going to excite me. Someone else is going to inspire me. People, the self-help movement, the personal development, self-help, the influencer, motivational speaker, even in the, in the, around the globe, right? the Tony Robbins movement, 
is massive, massive. People look because people want to feel inspired. And at the moment when you have the fiery rabbi telling you that story and you're crying because the story is so beautiful, or you have the, the motivational speaker, the influencer, the Tony Robbins, and they're yelling at you that you could be better and think more positive. So you're feeling at that moment, you're feeling so awake, you're feeling so inspired. At that moment, you can conquer the world. Like the Nudnik Buxbaum who's trying to light the fire, who thinks that it's lighting up just because there's a flame right there, but that's only because the candle is up right there. It's, it's, the candle is there, so it looks like it's on fire. The moment that it goes away, the moment that the candle goes away, that the fire goes away, suddenly it's not there anymore. The fire is not there. What happened? I was standing at the hotel last week. Not, that wasn't actually, but theoretically. You're standing at the Kotel. You just want to change the world and change your life. And a week later, it's gone. It's Yom Kippur. And this is going to be your year. And a week later, it's gone. Rabbi Sermon, the Tony Robbins seminar conference, whoever it might be, and then it's gone. Because it's just like the, the fellow holding the candle up. But then when, once the candle goes away, the flame is gone. Hitpa alut is wonderful, but if it doesn't, hitpa alut is when I'm becoming inspired from something outside of me. But it can only last a certain amount, it can't last forever. We need to develop the next step, the next level of the Ish Kodesh. And that's called Hitrag Shut. Hitrakshut is when the pilot light is on. Hitrakshut is when there's an inner yearning, when there's an inner emotion. When instead of looking outside, I'm looking inward. I'm saying, what do I really feel? What's that voice inside of me? What's it saying? What's it, what does it speak to me? How does it guide me? When I'm awake inside, Shir Hashim in the Song of Songs, it says, Ani Yishena air. I'm sleeping, but my heart is awake. We want our hearts to be awake. And even then, sometimes it doesn't necessarily feel explosive. It's difficult. I might feel like I'm Yishen, I might feel like I'm sleeping, but my heart is awake and I want to feel it a little bit more. It will come. That's the next step. That's Hitlahavut. Hitlahavut means it's a flame on fire. I'm feeling it. I'm excited. But it's, an, but, but it's a flame. It's like the easy life in my fireplace. It's the flame that comes about. It's an authentic flame. It's a flame that didn't come from something outside of myself, but it came from my inner yearning, my inner work. I worked so hard. I pushed. I pushed farther and farther and farther. And now, Hitlavut, I am on fire. And it's my own fire. It's not an externally ignited fire. It's ignited from inside, from my heart. We know that the light of the Hanukkah menorah is supposed to represent that inner fire. Many symbolisms, Hanukkah is wonderful in terms of if you like symbolisms, the symbolism of mitzvot and how they correspond to other things. If you like the numbers game, this equals this, Hanukkah is your holiday. There's so much there. And one of the beautiful, most beautiful ideas in Hanukkah is that if you look at the Hanukkah candle itself, which is a composite, it needs three ingredients. You have the oil, you have the wick, and you have the little flame. 
and I'm sure that you've heard this before, and if not, I'm happy to be the one to share it with you, that the, the flame itself is a ner with the letter nun, the wick is called a psil with the letter pei, and the oil is shemen with the letter shin. And if you take that, if you take those three, the, what's called the rashi table, if you take the first letter of ner, psil, and shemen, it spells nefesh, which is our life force, which is our soul. So when we look at the candles, the candles themselves are supposed to be that inner life force, the candle, the flame that's inside of us, the pilot light being turned on every single night a little bit more. Another beautiful symbolism that perhaps you've heard is that Hanukkah is eight days. And we know in Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah and the deeper sources they speak about seven being completion of the natural order, completion of the physical world, and how so many things revolve around seven, the seven days of the week, the seven continents, the seven colors of the rainbow, the seven musical notes, and it goes on and on and on. And in Judaism, holidays are seven days. There's so much in terms of seven, because it represents completeness. Hanukkah is eight days. Eight is transcendent. Eight is metaphysical. Eight is infinity. Eight is the the, the days of when, when a child is a circumcision to show that this is our contribution about how we're going to break through the physical chains, how we're going to break beyond our physical capacity, our capacity as human beings, and we're going to become in this lifetime even bigger, even greater. And every single night, the lighting of the candles, one night and two nights and three nights, up to eight, shows that we're growing, we're lighting that fire. So there's so many symbolisms within the story of Hanukkah. Another beautiful one. If you look at the, uh, the, the, the Hanukkah, which is Hanukkah, Hanukkah is on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev. And if you look at the 25th word in the Torah, the 25th word of the Torah is or, is light, a hint to the light of Hanukkah. And we know what is that light? It was the first day God said, let there be light, and it was light. And the commentary say that this wasn't a physical light, this wasn't a natural light, this wasn't a light bulb, a fluorescent light bulb, or even the sun or the moon. This light was called the Oragonus, the hidden light. This term enlightenment that so many religions throw around, each one with their own language. What is enlightenment? Enlightenment is trying to tap into the spiritual light, the light, the hidden light of creation, that Or Hagan is the light of the first day of creation, hinted to in the 25th word in the Torah. So once again, the light of the Hanukkah menorah, the beautiful candles of the Hanukkah menorah, are meant to be that light inside of us. What does the Hanukkah story teach me as to how to do it? And what I want to speak about in our time together tonight is to try to look back a little bit at the Hanukkah story itself and see how the story can provide us guidance for where we are today, where the world is today. What does the Hanukkah story, the story itself, what does it symbolize? How can we take that story and cut it and paste it to our lives? Because we know, we know that every single holiday is not all about this story in history that happened 2,000, 1,000, however long ago it happened. The, the, the holiday is meant to be the story of today, my story, our story. 
And the historical aspect of it, the commemorative aspect of it, is meant to give us a window. How can we relive that story? How can we make that story our story? So the Hanukkah story, we know, we teach it to all of our kids. We know the wonderful story of the oil that the, the Talmud teaches us. The oil lasted, was only supposed to last for one day, and it lasted for eight days. We know about the story, we know about the Maccabees, and how they won this war. They were a small army against the big army. But the Hanukkah story is a little bit bigger than that. All of these stories really focus on the moment that Hanukkah became Hanukkah. But what we have to look at to fully understand the Hanukkah story is the moment in time that Hanukkah entered into the universe. Because the story is more than what happened, it's when it happened. Every single holiday, you know, we don't just make holidays for miracles. We don't just make holidays for miracles. We have had so many miracles that have happened to us throughout our history. And if, 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 if we made a, a, a holiday for every single one, we would all be very, very, very much stuffing our faces all the time. And it would not be healthy because we do not always eat as healthy as we should during these holidays. You can't have a holiday every single time there's a miracle. The holidays that we have commemorate miracles that happened at very specific points of transition in the history of the world and the history of the Jewish people. The miracle itself was God's way of saying, we're undergoing a change now. Next phase. We're moving on. The way that you lived, the way that you practiced, the way that things were up until now, they're going to change in every single holiday that commemorates something. And obviously, we know how Passover, we went from being a non-nation, just this people swallowed up in Egypt, to being the Jewish nation. That's an easy one to see. But we know that Shavuot, we went from not having the Torah to having the Torah. Urim comes in very strategically in history, right between the first and the second temple, transition. And the story of Hanukkah itself represents a massive transition in how Jews practiced what Jews used as a way to connect to God. Let's take a look at that a little bit closer. If we want to understand what a moment in history represents, and we look at who we're, we look at the enemy, we look at who we're at war against, and the contrast, there's going to be a contrast being brought out between us and between them. There is a powerful concept that's found many, many times in Jewish mystical texts. That's called Zeh Le'umat Zeh. Zeh Le'umat Zeh means this opposite this. And that means that when there is an energy that is entered into the world, the Shefa, something is coming from God, a godly energy that can be taken and that can be used for holiness, or it can be used for impurity, or at the very, or, you know, even just mundane, it's mundane use, or even worse, it can be used for impurity. So when there's great potential, when there's potential, when there's an awakening in mankind, when we see a new, any new movement, and if you even look today at any of the movements, there's so many movements that are out there. You don't have to look, you know, more than just the last half a year. And all of the movements that are shaking up the world as we know it, our country as we know it. 
And we see that every single movement has in it its holy aspects, and every single movement has within it its impure aspects. And so much that falls in that gray space in between. So let's look at the Greeks. And let's look at what they represented. And let's try to find a little bit of a common thread. And maybe those who were part of the MindFlex program last night touched on this. And maybe we can go a little bit deeper. Because we'll see something absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. And that is that there was a movement happening within the world at large being affected by the Greeks. And a movement happening within the Jewish world. And that they're somewhat parallel except one on the side of holiness and the other on the side of the more mundane. We know historically that the Greeks made massive contributions to society, contributions in their philosophy, in government, in democracy, in the sciences, in the arts, architecture, sculpture. They were into wisdom. They're very cultured, very smart. And so much of the cultured world that we know today is inspired by Greece. And who can say that in our own lives, we're not affected by a world that is the outgrowth of what Greece introduced to the world, right? If, if, and if most of the, of the entertainment, most of the beautiful things are somewhat, we'll connect back to that. They made a massive impact on the world and really did create a much more improved, much more civilized world. In many ways. And one of the things that the Greeks were emphasizing was the power, the emphasis, the focus on the human being and the focus on what we can become. That our creativity can create art, that our minds can create new governments, new systems, new math, new science. The fact that the human being is amazing, is incredible. On the physical realm, they were very big into their bodies and their athleticism to show that every single part of us, our creativity, our intellect, and even our bodies are something that are beautiful. Which is one of the reasons why we see in many of the Jewish texts, they say that we're not meant to push away Greece, but we're meant to utilize what they introduced to the world and use it for holiness. But we also have to look at what was going on in the Jewish world. And again, the Hanukkah story, which happened 2nd century BCE, was a response to something that was going on for almost two centuries before that. The Hanukkah story didn't happen in a bubble. It didn't happen in, you know, three days. The Hanukkah story was an outgrowth of a Hellenization that was going on for a much longer time. But how? What was causing it? What started it? And the rabbis teach us that there was a massive shift in how we operated as Jews that happened just as Alexander the Great was conquering massive areas of land and changing over his section of the world. There was also a massive change happening in Judaism. And what was that? It was the end of the era of prophecy. Malachi, the last prophet, with his death, prophecy was gone. And up until then, from the, really the beginning, when Judaism first began at Mount Sinai with the great prophet Moshe Rabbeinu Moses, all the time when the Jewish people were in Israel, the first temple, we were very much dependent on those prophets, prophets to guide us. And the deeper commentaries explain 
that even if you weren't the prophet, the fact that you lived during the era of prophecy meant that your spiritual connection was somehow being plugged into that prophecy. Somehow their spiritual Wi-Fi that they brought down with their prophecy, everybody was plugged in, everybody felt it. To the point that this is what the this is what many of the of the of the commentaries, Jewish tradition teaches, that even when they study Torah, even when they study Torah, it was an aspect, it was a level of prophecy. Malachi dies, prophecy leaves. And at that point, the Jewish people need to readjust. They need to redefine themselves. Who are we now? something amazing happens. If you take a look at all of the books that we have of the Oral Torah, and we know Torah Sheba Alped, the Oral Torah, is something that is as old as, the, as any part of Torah. It comes right down at, at Mount Sinai, together with everything else. So the Oral Torah was there. It was part of Jewish life from the beginning. But yet, at that point in time, when the prophecy is finished, when the era of prophecy is finished, something happens with the oral Torah. Suddenly it starts becoming alive in a whole new way. The Talmud says that at that point in time, and really you can track it with the names, beginning with the, the, the names of, of all of the rabbis in the Mishnayot were more or less around this period. And again, we're talking about you know, a couple of centuries here. And I'm not going to get into the dates because I'll, because I'll lose you and I'll lose me. But the overall time, this, this second temple period, was a time when suddenly, with prophecy gone, the conversations that are happening, suddenly the, 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 the Talmud says, Rabu Machlok, is suddenly there's new debates happening. And while that might seem scary, because suddenly we have all of this different conversation, and yet it seems very dynamic, but I'm saying one thing, and you're saying something else, and how could they both be right? And then the Talmud says something absolutely wonderful many, many times, Elu elu divrei elu kilchayim. It is possible that we could be having a conversation. I could be saying yes, you could be saying no. I could be saying pink, you could be saying blue. And yet, elu elu, both your words, both my words, divrei elu kilchayim. These are the words of God. What does that mean? What, the word of God? This is this rabbi's opinion. How could it be the word of God? He's arguing with another rabbi who's saying something else. The Talmud says no. That's not the way that all tradition works. This is a gift. This is a gift to the Jewish people to say, you're part of this process. You're part of the development. You have the tools. You have the groundwork. You have the written Torah. You have the tradition up until this point. You have the mechanisms that you need to go and study. Now go and make it something absolutely amazing. Build on it. Build on it. Because Elu Elu Divrei Elu Kim Chaim, these are the words of God. You know, there's a fascinating, fascinating line that says that when you're quoting someone, when you're saying over a Torah, an idea within Torah that you heard from somebody else, you should quote it in their name. And there's a fascinating explanation to that. When we say something, we're quoting a piece of Talmud or, or, or you know, this, this wonderful Sefer, and I say, the Eish Kodesh said this, Rabbi Akiva said this, this person said this, their actual names become part of the statement of Torah. They themselves have become the channel by which this Torah enters into the world. Divrei Elohim Chaim, it's the word of God. 
The Word of God is now being manifested through them. Through their own opinions, which came through the study of the written Torah. That is a fascinating idea to the point that we believe that in every single word of Torah that we learn, whether it's the Talmud, whether we're learning the commentaries, there is an aspect of the Word of God in there, even though if you would have asked the person saying it, they were like, hey, are you a prophet? Like, no, prophecy's gone. I'm pretty sure that I came up with that. But it's the Word of God. Somehow or another, within this oral Torah, within this Jewish tradition, we somehow say that my own insight, my own perspective, can be fused together with the Word of God. A fascinating idea. You know, Moshe, Moses, in his final song to God in Parshish Hazinu, so he says his words should be like rain, and his saying should be like dew. The commentaries say that rain is compared to the written Torah and dew is compared to the oral Torah. Because rain is always raining down. I, I feel like I'm out of control. Right? I'm sitting there, I'm walking, seems like a nice day, and then suddenly it starts raining, ah, I don't have my umbrella, right? It seems like I'm being poured upon. Something coming on me, I'm out of control. And yet dew, you never get stuck in a dew storm, right? It seems to come from below. And it just seems to be there. Where did it come from? It just seems to materialize. And you know when you have this insight, when you're studying Torah, and you have a question, and you're thinking about it, and you're racking your brains, and you sleep on it, and you, you, you walk around the block, and you pace back and forth, and you're bothered by it, and suddenly, it came to me, light bulb, aha moment. What, what is that? What is that? Did that come from me? Did that come from God? Was that a prophecy? I don't know. I don't know. That's the power of the oral Torah. Let's compare once again the world of Greece and what's going on within the Jewish people at that time. There's an energy flowing into the world. In the world of Greece, that means that suddenly they're seeing the power of the human being. Wow, look at the human being. Look at his, how big his muscles could become. Look how smart he can be. Look how he can come up math, look how we could come with science, look how we could create that sculpture, how we could create that art, how we could create that music. Wow, that human being. And in the Jewish world, they're saying the same thing. Wow, look at that human being. Look how we can come up with that Torah insight. Was that a prophecy? I don't know. I don't think so. But yet it seems like it's the word of God. It seems so true. It seems so powerful. It's the same movement happening. Except in one place it's happening for the mundane. In the other place it's happening for holiness. There's this amazing line from, believe it or not, it's, it's quoted many times in the world of art and in the world of creativity. And that is a line from Socrates who lived at, at that time. And Socrates, I'm going to read this for you because I, I wouldn't be able to remember it on our own. But what Socrates says is, this thing about poetry. And he says, if man comes to the door of poetry untouched by the madness of the gods, sounds very Greek, right? Believing that technique alone will make him a good poet, he and his sane compositions will never reach perfection, but are utterly eclipsed by the performance of the inspired madman. What is he talking about? Why do I love this quote? I love this quote. What Socrates is saying is, the artist, the poet, 
and we hear sometimes, even when we hear artists, songwriters, when they speak, and they speak about that creative thing, it came through me. It came through me. The song came to me. Even in the world of art, they seem to sense that something just happened that was bigger than me. It was outside of me. That language that they're speaking about in that world of art, in that world of science, in that world of medicine, the Jewish people are making that same transition, except they're talking about it in the world of Torah. It came to me. This insight came to me. I don't think it was a prophecy, but I'm not sure that it came from me either. This is something so wonderful, so true. But it's coming from inside here. It's not coming from there. It's not raining down on me. It's like dew. It's coming from inside, raising itself up. The story of Hanukkah represents the transition from the world of prophecy the world of having to look outside of myself to the world of Torah Shabbat, to the world of the oral Torah, which is about looking inside and trying to find the renewal inside of me. We opened up and we said that the Esh Kodesh says that in our journey, we need to move beyond hitba alut, always looking to be inspired by the external flame. And we need to develop a hitrag shut, an inner emotion, so that we can build out of that a hitlavut, a fiery flame. That hitlavut, that fiery flame, is the flame of the menorah. And that's why we make sure that on the very first night we're lighting one, and then two, and then three, because it's just a pilot light. But if we're consistent about it and we continue, it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. Over the course of Hanukkah, one one candle on the first night, two on the next night, three on the next night, if we add it all together, so we get 36 lights. And the commentaries have said that the 36 lights correspond to the 36 hours that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden from the time that they were created until through that very first Shabbat when they were allowed to stay 36 hours in total. And for those 36 hours, they had this brilliant, brilliant connection to God absolutely revealed. They're eating from the tree of knowledge, put them in a state of lower consciousness, but until they left the Garden of Eden, they were still there, just sitting there, sun tanning in this godly, beautiful, hidden light that we spoke about. Then they left. And what happened to that light? It became an orhagonas, became a hidden light. A hidden light means it's still there. They just have to go and find it. And when Adam and Eve, when they fall from this high level, God, God asks them a question in one word, Ayeka, where are you? And we know that that very word Ayeka has numerical value 36. It's God's way of saying, I know you don't feel me now in this full high definition, right? You don't feel me in this powerful way, but don't think that I'm gone. Ayeka, you just have to find yourself. Ayeka, where are you? If you find yourself, if you find what inspires you and you build on that, then you will find those 36 candles. You will find your way back to that hidden light. In the Hanukkah story, just because prophecy turns off, doesn't mean that the Jewish people can't remain connected. They just have to find it within ourselves. And if it doesn't feel like it's working, 
the process of looking inwards, the process of hitrag shut is very different. It's not like hitpa'alit. It's not like standing at the hotel with live music in the background and being suddenly awake. It's not like having an influencer yell at you or, your, or, 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 or the motivational speaker or the rabbi give you that powerful thing where you just go out and say, I'm going to change the world. Because we know that that only lasts only so long. It's a process of one light and then two lights and then three lights. Like the very famous story is a very famous story and we're, we're going to end with this. Compound interest. The miracle of compound interest. So this anecdotal story is the father is on his deathbed and he, and he offers as an inheritance to two of his children. He says, you have a choice. I can give you a million bucks right now. Or if you want, I can give you one penny. But for the next 30 days, every single day, that penny is going to be doubled. And one sounds like a penny. That sounds like so little. Who would want that? This is some sort of scam. Give me a million bucks. I'll take it. Walk away. The other son says, oh, my father must have something up his sleeve. I'm going to take the penny. And the next day, that penny is two pennies. And then it's four. And then it's eight. And it's too late at night for me to do all the math. But one thing that I can tell you is that at the end of the month, the two sons meet one another. And the guy who took the million dollars has got a million bucks. The guy who took the penny has got well over that. The number, and again, you'll do the math on your own, but his number is crushing the other one. Millions and millions. Because that little penny doubled every single day. When we're finding our own path, we try this, we try that. And it doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't always feel like there's going to be a big explosion today. What is the consistency of saying, I can be a little bit better today? And I can be a little bit better than that tomorrow. And I can grow a little bit more. And I'm going to be consistent about it in these small tweaks. And it's like watching a clock where you can never really see it moving. But then you look back and you're like, wow. Spirituality is about the long game. It's about the long game. It's not just about always feeling amazing. It's about saying, I'm going to stick to this program. And I'm going to always reach down deeper and deeper and deeper. And make today just a little bit better. Make that one flame into two, and then into three. And we're go going to compound on that spirituality until I'm a full menorah, until I'm up to that eight and night, that number of transcendence, until the hidden light, the light of enlightenment is pulsing through me, until I can look back at my life or look back at this large section of my life and say, this is what I became through my hard work, through my toil. And then Hanukkah, which comes at the darkest time of the year, but it comes at that transitional moment. Because shortly after Hanukkah, then suddenly the days get longer. The tree becomes too bishvat and the trees start blowing again. They, they start blossoming again. That point, that transition in my life of always having to rely on those, that external inspiration and looking inwards and turning it into a full flame, a full hitlavot, one that I can look back on and feel fully inspired and full of joy. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.